this morning uh, in terms of who we have here to bring the word. We are in a series called Why Rental, which is simply just asking the question, why do we exist? We're in our fifth January together, and uh, it's easy for mission, vision, clarity to drift. And so here we are in our fifth January going back to the beginning, and we have uh, a guest speaker today, guest preacher, who comes uh, from us from Buffalo, New York. Uh, at Restoration Church, and uh, but uh, is someone that's been connected to us uh, for uh, so much more, and, and comes uh, to us from the old days of Missio Church and the Palace Theater. Uh, I'm excited to have him uh, bring this last sermon uh, in this series, uh, talking about uh, really uh, the presenting of the gospel to every man, woman, and child in our geography. Uh, uh, for a number of reasons, and I got to be careful because this introduction could be the sermon. So I want to bring it to a, could be bring it to the a simple focus that we are glad to have him here this morning because uh, Jim Murphy is a passionate man. And I think about uh, one way, and I could describe him in many other ways, but one way to focus in on is that we have a man that is passionate, passionate about loving his family, his wife, his kids passionate about uh, Michael Jordan, um, which we share that, and anyone that speaks against him being the greatest of all time, we get a little, we get a little flustered. We get a little angry, because it's silly. So you see, you're feeling it already. No, that's silly uh, to speak of these things, but, you know, he's passionate about the church. He's passionate about the Word of God, and, uh, you know, one of the examples of this that uh, if you ever get a chance to pray with Jim Murphy, it, you know, sometimes you pray with people and you're like, wow, that was nice. And sometimes you pray with people and you're like, why is, why is the room shaking? You're like, is this what it was like at Pentecost, right? Like the table's moving a little bit. His, his hand like hit the table and, you know, his, his legs moving. And you're like, wow, this, this is quite an experience praying with Jim Murphy. It's just who he is. And so if you're here this morning and you're comfortable and you're, you're kind of relaxed, or maybe you're a little sleepy, you're about to get woken up, uh, because when this man preaches and he interacts with the Word of God, uh, the room begins to shake a little bit. So we're excited to have him. Jim, why don't you come forward, man? I want to pray for you. Uh, you have been a part of this from day one. We, many of us here, have learned so much from you. I talked a few months ago when Bernie Elliott came to preach that there were 10 people in my life that have influenced me, uh, uh, that I've just been thinking about. Bernie was one of those, and the word that came to mind was think. Like, Bernie taught me to think. And this brother here influenced me like no one else to reach. Reach people that don't know Jesus. He's uh, written and come up with the My Circle Initiative, which is so much so central to our small groups and our missional communities. And he's, he's put this together and taught this all across the country, and I think even beyond that at times. So this brother comes to us uh, as someone who has something to say, who's lived it out, who's exemplified it, and so we're excited to have you, man. Help us reach every man, woman, and child. Let's pray for Jim. Father, thank you so much for this brother and his influence and his passion and his love for Jesus. I pray that even now that you would give him the strength to communicate well 
to take a back seat to your glory and the truth of your word, and yet serve us well. Bless him, his family, his ministry, and may our hearts be attentive to what you have to say through him. In Christ's name, amen. Let's welcome Jim Murphy. There's a power button. I want you to know it says on, and then there's a power button. That's confusing. <laughs> there's an engineer in the room to fix that. <laughs> yeah. um, well, Mike, thank you for those words. I'm, I'm honored, I'm humbled, and uh, man, I feel way too short to measure up to those words. And uh, as I was driving over here, um, and, and I'm not trying to, to, to just pander, I, I genuinely mean this, like I love this church. I love the people that are a part of this church, whether you know me or not, um, and I love this city. Uh, when I, my family and I moved away from Syracuse in uh, uh, April, actually the end of March of 2015, and in my last sermon at Missio that I gave, one of the, the final things that I shared with the congregation that this is my home. And this is my family's home, and our heart is forever in central New York, and that has not changed, though we've spent a short time in Houston, and now, by God's grace, we are thrilled to be in the city of Buffalo, uh, fighting for the heart of our king there in that city, and doing that in partnership with churches all across the great state of New York. And one of the things that I genuinely thank the Lord for is that it allows me to come back here to Syracuse and continue in ministry that we all began together over 10 years ago. And what a joy and what a gift that is to be able to do that. And I just want to encourage you that the story that God is writing through you and through this ministry is not simply contained within these walls, but tells a story outside of these walls to other ministries and other churches that, that literally look into what God has begun here in central New York and praise Him for His work. And every one of you is a part of that. And so I want to just briefly give... Uh, a story for you. Some of you will probably be able to tell it better than me because you were there. Uh, but how all of this got started? What was it that, 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 that God did in the hearts of people to start Missio and then from that to see Renovation Church get planted and to see the different things that are going on? And so what happened was, is a man named Jordan Stinziano, who uh, many of you, some of you in this room know, uh, he and I were on staff together in Southwest Florida at a church called Summit Church, and one of the pastors from that church moved up here because he was from here and started to plant a church in the southeast part of the city. And so Jordan was coming up to uh, help him and, and coach him and just kind of give him some encouragement and while he was walking the streets of his former home, I believe he said he got a piece of Pavone's pizza from the downtown uh, one that's nostalgic for him as a kid. And he was on the corner of Warren and Fayette Street. 
Now, you need to understand, Jordan was very happy where he was. He was in a, at that time, the fastest growing church plant in the Florida Baptist Convention history. And he was one of the teaching pastors there. And while he was on the corner of Warren and Fayette Street, he saw a woman with Down syndrome wearing a blue parka cross the street. And as he watched her cross the street, he had this jarring question just ring in his heart. Who will fight for her? Who will fight for that girl right there? And not only her, but who will fight for my glory? And who will continue that fight? And Jordan couldn't shake it. As a matter of fact, the, I believe the first thing that he did was he met with someone I think some of you know kind of well, Jeremy Callie. And they were uh, childhood friends growing up, grew up in the same youth group. And if Jordan was here, he would tell you he was trying to convince him to plant the church here. <laughs> He's like, I'm in Florida, I'm loving it. So Jeremy, why don't you go do it? But yet something still wouldn't let go of his heart. So Jeremy and Jordan began to dream and began to pray. And it wasn't long after that, I found myself on a mission trip uh, with Jordan to Rome, Italy, to work with uh, Jack Cinziano, who was looking to plant a church and, um, and start a ministry there. And Jordan began to share with me what God was stirring in his heart. But what he didn't know is for about six months prior to that, my wife and I, who are both Midwesterners by birth, have no connection to Syracuse other than I liked watching their basketball team every now and then. We began to pray that God would break our heart for a region, not just a ministry. We knew Florida was not that place. As much as we were thankful for that place, we began to pray, God, break our heart for a place. Break our heart for a people. We'll go anywhere. And so as he begins to share with me his, uh, about Syracuse and, and what God was, was stirring in his heart there, that evening, I looked at my wife who was with me on the mission trip. We, we went back to the hotel and I said, Tara, how would you feel if we moved to Syracuse? She laughed and told me to go to bed. <laughs> so we began to pray through this for about 18 months, Jordan, Jeremy, and I. And around those same years, Mike and Doreen, their heart was burdened for their home. And they were in ministry in upstate New York. And then you all kind of get where the story goes. About 2007, 2008, we all find ourselves here in the city of Syracuse. And we were not here just to plant a church. We were not, because, and, and this vision doesn't just originate with us, but stands on the shoulders of faithful men and women who have been in ministry in this geography for years before us. But, but what God was stirring in our heart is, will you be a part of continuing what I've begun in this place? Will you have a bigger vision than just one congregation? But can you have a vision that truly looks at the, at the mission and the heart of God to see every man, every woman and every child have a repeated opportunity to see the kingdom of God in action through his people and have an opportunity to hear the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Will you be a part of that? And that's what was stirring in our heart. The vision from the beginning was not just to be about ourselves but that had deeply rooted convictions, driven, number one, by a bedrock belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that that message would be presented to every man, woman, and child. And so you see the core values rise 
from this heart, that we would be a people that would love our God and value our God above all things, that He is our highest value. All the other core values flow out of that. Then number two, we would be a people that stand on His revealed truth. That we do not approach the Word of God as if it needs to conform to us, but instead we come in a posture of submission and say, Oh Lord, by a work of Your Spirit, let us be conformed to Your Word. And let us stand on that Word, despite what the world may bring us. Number three, that we would be transformed by His love. And therefore seek to love others in like manner. And finally, that we would be on mission with him in the world. And in order to see that vision lived out, we did not want to merely craft our own strategies. But we wanted to search the scriptures, to devote ourselves to prayer, and submit to godly mentors that would help us do what God wanted done in the ways in which he wanted it. So we ask the question, what does God want in Syracuse? And what does it look like when God begins to get what he wants? And so one of the things that we see is that we had people that were a part of Missio Church. I believe you were a part of the very first meeting in the basement of that convention building. And look at what God has brought. Amazing. And we had a group of people six years ago that were meeting together downtown uh, where Missio currently meets. And these people were from these northern suburbs and they got this vision. And they said, we, we, we're excited about this vision, but we see our neighbors in Baldwinsville and in Liverpool and in Cicero and in North Syracuse. And we, wanna, we want the gospel to be more accessible to them. We want to we, we see a congregation established right in their backyards because we want to take this and we want to spread it out because we are not about building one kingdom, we are, one small K kingdom, one church. We want to be about building the kingdom. We don't care where God gets the glory as long as he is glorified. And so a group of, of about 40 people came forward and said, we'll go plant Renovation Church. We'll go out and we'll go in the northern suburbs and we will continue the fight for every man, woman, and child. And so now we see two congregations, one vision, broken with the heart of God to fight for every man, woman, and child. Even, even people that none of us know their name. And as we walk through this journey we see, a, uh, as we walked through this journey, we see a very important conviction rise from the scriptures in his mission. And that is this, that God has tethered himself to his people in order to accomplish his mission. Guys, this is so important because we did not want to build a ministry that was simply content with filling up rooms where you see where, where we have good communicators and phenomenal worship leaders just put on a show that make us all feel good and then we go home and we're like like we saw a movie I really like that movie but then we kind of go about our business but this is these are ministries fueled by the conviction of empowerment of the full empowerment of Christ's people 
to go out into the world and to be scattered everywhere they go as representatives of their king who has redeemed them. And this was not our idea. We're not... We're not novel enough to, or smart enough to think we came up with that, but we looked at the scriptures and we see it in our mentor, one of our mentors, a man named Dwight Smith, who is a missiologist that has worked all around the world, phrases it this way, that whatever God is going to do in the world, he is primarily going to do it through all of Christ's people. Theologian Christopher Wright, in his book, The Mission of God, puts it this way, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not, mission was not made for the church. The church was made for the mission. Don't miss that. Because if we're not, if, if we're not careful we're going to think that this idea of reaching people with the gospel at, at most will be me giving a couple dollars in the plate. At, or we're going to relegate it to just a few people to just go and do it for us. But that is not God's intention. Every single one of you in this room that belongs to Jesus Christ God is using and wants to continue to use you and work through you for his glory to bring the gospel to the world. You are a part of God's plan. We see this through the entire scriptures. If we go, for example, to Genesis chapter 1, and remember, this is before sin comes into the world. We see this starting in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is an incredible moment that we see happen right at the dawn of creation where God makes man in his image. And then what we see the first thing God do is he, he blesses them. And what that means is, is, is basically you can take this connotation. The idea of God blessing Adam and Eve is God stooping down and giving them himself. I have made you and now I'm blessing you. I am coming down and I'm bringing you to me. I have created you to know me. I have created you to live inside of a relationship with me. And outside or inside of that relationship, Adam and Eve, now, I want you to go through the earth, fill it, and subdue it with my glory. In other words, God's plan to fill the earth was to be done through Adam and Eve. Right there, God establishes, I'm, I'm making you, I'm bringing you into relationship with myself, and now I'm going to work through you to do my work in the world. We see this continued in Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, 
where God calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to create in you a, a, a people through whom the world, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, Abraham, look, I'm going to continue what I started with Adam and Eve, working my work through the whole world, through the people that belong to me. And now I'm going to create in you a people with which I'm going to work through to bless the whole world. We see it in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, where God now has redeemed the entire nation of Israel from slavery. And he brings them to himself at Mount Sinai. Again, do you see the connotation? I've made Adam and Eve. I've blessed them with relationship and nearness. And then I send them out. I, it's the same thing. God comes to Abraham, brings him to himself, and says, here's what I'm going to work through you. In the same way he says to the nation of Israel, I've saved you by my hand. I have worked my wonders through my deliverer. I am now bringing you to myself. And then he declares over them, you are a kingdom of priests. In other words, you have a relationship with me and you represent me in the world. God's desire, even in the creation of Israel, was not just to create an isolated community. It was to create a distinct people saved by his work, defined by him who had the very word of God to be a refracting glory to the nations that would cause the nations to look in and want to know this God named Yahweh. We see this when the first temple was built and King Solomon prays this great prayer of dedication and in that prayer he prays, God, as the nations come in here, let them see your glory. God's eyes have always been on the nations. And then we see the church in the New Testament. Again, you see the pattern. God redeems a people for himself, through his deliverer, Jesus. He saves them, he brings them to himself, and then looks at those people and says, now, Jesus says in John chapter 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. Just meditate on that verse for even 20 minutes. As the Father has sent me, Christ, so now as his people, we are sent. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where Peter reaches back into Exodus chapter 19 that I referenced a few moments ago, and he utters these beautiful, powerful words where he says, where he says this, starting in verse 9, talking to the church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These are the same words God used for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. Do you see that? God says, this is who you are now. You are my people. You are my people that I've chosen. You belong to me. I've worked my wonders through my son. I've brought you to me. Now, go and declare my excellencies. That you were not a people and now you are. Once you were not a part of mercy and now you are. So what and who is the church? The church is made up of people who have been restored back into relationship with God through His Son. Church is not a, a, a place, it's a people. If we read, for example, in uh, Ephesians chapters 2 and 3, we see a, really, 1, 2, and 3, we see a brilliant theology laid out for us about the church and about the power of the gospel. Chapter 1 of Ephesians has a hymn-like quality to it, where Paul just starts writing, Blessed be our God. He, said, he starts off, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then he goes on and celebrates how we have been chosen, how we have been loved, how we have been had his mystery revealed to us, just layer after layer after layer of what it means to be blessed in Christ. And then he goes and he teaches in chapter 2. This beautiful teaching about the nature of these people. And what we see is that we are a people of grace. The church is only the church because of the grace of God. The church is only the church because God has done something. He has done a work in His Son, Jesus Christ, on all of our behalf. What we just sang about. His death was our victory. His blood shed was our forgiveness. There is no hope for mankind apart from Jesus Christ. There is no hope for mankind apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we as his people, by his rich kindness, at once who had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. And that's only by God's grace. We also see as... Ephesians 2 continues that not only are we able to stand in the presence of God as His children by His grace, but we also see that we are a people of peace. We have peace now with God, and we have peace now with one another. And, and together as a people who have been saved by grace, and who are a people of peace, we see that we, starting in verse 19 of chapter 2, it says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In other words, we're a kingdom. Our identity is we are a kingdom with a king. We are family with a father. And we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That means we stand on the apostolic authority and the prophetic word that is sealed in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And that in whom we are being joined together to grow into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Ponder that for a moment. Not only are we saved by grace, 
Not only do we have peace with God and peace with one another, not only are we citizens in the kingdom of heaven, not only are we a family with God himself as our father, not only do we have the revealed truth given to us, we don't need to go on a search for truth. We have it in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ. We get to go on the journey of discovering all the joys found in that revealed truth. But it gets even better than that. We, as his people, are the very dwelling place of God. Let that sit with you for a moment. This, this means that everywhere we go, God goes. God has put his temple on the move. God's desire from the beginning was to see his glory cover the earth that he set up in Genesis 1, that his glory would cover the earth as he worked through his people. And now he has put his spirit in his people. And he is redeeming people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And as those people come together as his people, he indwells them with his spirit and then sends them back out into the world. And the gospel becomes accessible to the nooks and crannies of life, in homes, in workplaces, in neighborhoods, in, in golf courses, when we get gas, when we go eat lunch, when we are walking the streets. The temple of God is on the move in and through his people. God is covering the earth with his glory. He himself is accomplishing what he set up all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. This is why the earth and all things exist. And when we are redeemed, we are restored back to that created purpose. What a gift. What a gift. And so the church is made up of people who have been made new and empowered by the Spirit of God to not only be in relationship with Him, but to represent Him in the world. And because of this, I believe we're to be a people with three priorities when it comes to the mission. That number one, we live with a gospel conviction. Think about the implications of what that means. Living with a gospel conviction means that we do not relegate the gospel to just that one thing that I add to my life to make me feel better. It's not just the one thing that I add to my life that I run to in a time of crisis. It's not just that one thing that I put on my life in mixed of everything else. I'm a golfer, I'm a businessman, I'm a dad, I'm a mom, I'm a Christian, I pay my taxes. I, No, no. Everything else finds its ultimate value, purpose, or discardability under the idea of the gospel. Paul writes it this way in Colossians chapter 3, where he says that we are to set our minds on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears. 
Living with a gospel conviction means that we, with ever-increasing stature, taking baby steps each and every day, that Christ more and more, we lose our life into His. That we recognize that, that, that the, uh, this isn't necessarily popular in our 21st century American mindset, but that we are not our own. We are bought at a price. That we are bondservants, willing slaves to our benevolent, good, holy king. And we say to him, not my will, but your will be done. That we say things like, apart from Jesus. Think of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. That apart from Christ, we have no good thing. Living with a gospel conviction also means that we recognize there are not multiple roads to find ultimate restoration back to our Father. That the gospel is the only hope for mankind. So we are to be a people who live with a gospel conviction. But number two, that we are to put the kingdom on display through our actions. This is what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 is getting at when he says, For we are his workmanship, talking about us as the church. We are his workmanship. And I would submit to you that I believe what that verse teaches and what I believe the, the, the New Testament teaches is that the pinnacle of God's creation is the church. The most beautiful, the, the pinnacle, the very thing with which everything was pointing towards is the church. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That I go about my life carrying a gospel conviction that bleeds into my entire life, that now through that I'm willing to lay my life down in such a manner that I put the kingdom on display through the way I treat others, through the way I sacrificially serve others, to my commitment to God's people that are my true family, to the way I give of my time, to the way that I give of my finances, to the way that I'm willing to sacrifice for the glory of my King, that I am willing to do things like what the Sermon on the Mount says. Forgive those who hurt you. That I'm willing to look at my spouse that I have entered into a covenant relationship with and say, my marriage exists for the glory of God and we have entered into a lifelong covenant together that is meant to point others to the beauty of God's commitment to His own people. The way that we parent, we put the kingdom of God on display through our actions. Paul also says it this way in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Not, that means live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. That's saying live with intentionality. Live as a kingdom citizen every day because the days are evil and the church, God's people, are salt and light in the world. So we live with gospel conviction. We put the kingdom of God on display through our actions. 
And we look to share the amazing news of Jesus Christ with other people. Paul says it this way in chapter 6, starting in verse 9, where he is talking about the putting on the whole armor of God, and at the end of it, he tells the church to pray. And he says, pray at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And verse 19, he says, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Think about those words. Now, I know what you may be thinking. That's Paul. He's an apostle. Of course he needs that. And yes, I would agree. There is something unique going on there where Paul is literally a man writing inspired words. He's doing things that you and I aren't doing. But at the same time, not only is he an ambassador, but if we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes the case that all of Christ's people are ambassadors. And that through all of us, God is making his appeal to the world, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us. So not only is Paul an ambassador, but you and I are ambassadors, indwelled by the Spirit of God, which means when you go to school, you're an ambassador for Christ. When you are sitting in your workplace, you are an ambassador for Christ. When you are, are parenting your children, you are an ambassador for Christ. When you are living in your neighborhood, you are an ambassador for Christ. Everywhere you go, you are an authorized representative from the King of Kings to this earth to declare that there is a better kingdom, to declare that there is a better ethic, to declare that there is, that there is a, a certain truth, to declare that there is a resurrected King. You are an ambassador so what does this mean for you? Number one, if we take the idea of boiling life down to relationship and representation, it means that pursuing intimacy with God should be your highest and greatest value. The first aspect of living with a gospel conviction is we see him in an ever-increasing way that God himself is our greatest treasure. He is the gift of the gospel. And oh, how that in and of itself stands in stark contrast to the world around us. It also means that we believe that God and his gospel is the only hope for mankind. Our culture has embraced a religion of polytheism. Not ultimately based on other gods like, like, like the Greek and, and the Romans had, but based around our truth. Based around us. Which we have seen joyfully celebrated, for example, in Oprah's Golden Globes speech just a week ago, when she stood up and declared that the most powerful thing in the world is when someone proclaims their truth. To raucous applause. We see that echoed in the Tanya Harding thing. You following this, this movie that's come out that's put Tanya Harding, it's like in a better light. They were interviewing her on 2020. 
And they were talking with her about, do you like see what happened here? Like, she was, Itzy Kerrigan was assaulted. (laughs) And she responded with, well, everybody has their truth. Everybody has their truth. Do you see what that means? It means we have now, as a culture, supplanted the one true God for us. And what I want is my truth, and therefore my religion, which means we have a polytheistic truth. I think it's funny how we laugh at the Greeks and Romans for believing in Zeus and Jupiter and all these other gods when we've just supplanted Zeus and Jupiter for me and for you and for Oprah. But instead, as followers of Christ, we believe the most profound thing is the proclamation of the truth, which is Jesus Christ himself, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So we must pursue this God and stand on that conviction in the midst of the world. We need to represent God in the world in which we live, which means, again, like I said a minute ago, we put the kingdom of di- on display through our actions by we live for His glory, not ourselves, which means that we walk in obedience to His word. What does it say in Romans chapter 12? After Paul writes this beautiful theology about the church and about the gospel, And he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Jesus Christ offered his life to be a a, a sacrifice that died so that you and I could offer ourselves as a sacrifice that lives. And the way that we do that is submitting to the scriptures, empowered by the Spirit, and walk in obedience to Him. When we walk in joyful obedience to our King, we are doing what Jesus says in John 14, where He says, I obey the Father so the world will know that I love Him. And in the same way, may our obedience show to the world that we love our God, not ourselves. Oh, what a message that's needed to the world that says we love ourselves. I love me, but we supplant that to say we love our king, not me. That we seek to share this amazing news of Jesus Christ, and we look to share our own gospel-centered stories with other people. That we share the word of God with people about salvation. And we do this in the midst of our ordinary lives and relationships. See, some of you may be called to go overseas. Some of you may be. But the vast majority of us are called to live a sent life within the context of your ordinary life. And that you bring the extraordinary gospel of grace, the extraordinary power of God through the, spirit, through, through the Spirit indwelling in you, through, th- into the context of your everyday life. I often wonder what it would look like in Syracuse and around, the, and around this city and in Buffalo if the vast majority of Christians did not relegate their walk with Jesus to an hour and a half a week 
but lived with these gospel convictions and lived a sent life, purposefully to say, whatever I'm doing, I'm going to use it as a vehicle to put the kingdom of God on display and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. I wonder what God would do through that. Not through, and, and that's not through extraordinariness of picking up your whole life and moving to India. That's taking your ordinary life and laying it before God and recognizing the single greatest way that you can love someone is ultimately by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Even if they hate you for it. Ponder that for a moment. The single greatest thing you can do to love someone is to share Christ with them even if they hate you. Is that your posture here today? Is that mine? You see, guys, this is the genius of God on display. Like I said a minute ago, wherever God goes, or wherever, wherever uh, God's people go, God goes. He goes in the people who have been reconciled back through the person and work of Jesus Christ and are sealed and empowered by His Spirit. And each one of us plays an important role. My prayer is, is that we don't abdicate that responsibility. My prayer is, is that we take it upon ourselves to go out into the midst of our ordinary lives and relationships with a deep gospel conviction, with a joy to put the kingdom on display through our lives and sacrifice, and that we share the message of Christ with those around us. But I ask you to consider, what is it that you truly believe deep down in your soul? What is it that ultimately governs your life on mission? Because in my experience, in church after church after church, and in conversation after conversation after conversation, the reality is the mission of God is most often the first thing to go. It's the last thing we talk about. It's the first thing to go. I read a report recently uh, that six out of ten followers of Christ in America have willingly chosen to abandon sharing Christ with their neighbors. How does that show a gospel conviction? How does that show a love for our King? How does that make us say we're followers of Christ? Jesus tells us, tells us in Matthew 10 that we are in fact called to lose our lives so that we may find it. And here's what I would ask. Don't fixate on the losing of your life and think, oh my gosh, what have I lost? Focus on the finding of your life compared to what Christ offers you. That His values become our values. His mission becomes our mission. His life becomes our life. And in order to do this, I believe we must be convinced that Christ is who He says He is now and not simply confine Him to the past 
and not simply confine him to that one day in the future when I hope I can pull out my get-out-of-jail-free card. But does the reality of Christ and the weight of his infinite worth govern your life now? John Webster, who was a brilliant British theologian, who passed away a little over a year ago, wrote this in one of his essays called Confessing God. He wrote this. Try, try to bear with me. It's a little long, so bear with me. He says, Jesus Christ's identity as one who is present to us is, of course, inseparable from his past. A past which has a definite, unalterable sequence and shape summarized in the church's confession through the key moments of birth, suffering, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. But as the last two events in that sequence indicate, resurrection and ascension, the trajectory of Jesus Christ's identity stretches inexorably into the present. His past being gathered into his present identity as one who cannot truthfully be spoken of only in the past tense. His past is not a mere contingency, but an integral part of his identity as the one who was and is and is to come. He is risen from the dead. And his resurrection is not simply a retrospective declaration. Oh, what, I'm almost done. What he writes is profound for mission. The Christ who is present with us now, right now, is inseparable from his past. He is risen. He is risen from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of, of the Father, seated in perfect, un unassailable power and glory. The same Christ who became flesh, who lived a perfect life for us, who died in our place on the cross, who victoriously rose from the grave and ascended into heaven, is here among us now, and He is with you wherever you go. He is with you through the deepest possible pain. He is with you through the moments of terror. He is with you in the moments when you're looking at someone in your life who does not yet know Christ, who is coming at you with persecution. He is with you in those moments and saying, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. I am with you in my resurrected power. I am with you as I'm seated in glory and I will give you everything you need to, to, to be faithful in life because I am faithful to my promises. And even if you should die for me, all you'll be having is you'll be swallowed up by life. He's alive in the full power of his resurrection. It's all true. Think about that. It's all true. And it has power for us today, right now. Webster's thoughts have caused me to wonder about myself and how I live my own life. How I face all that it throws at me. 
Do I live with such a conviction of Christ? Or do I live as if Christ and his, and his incredible works are merely retrospective declarations? I've also pondered how this impacts the way I approach those who are not followers of Christ. Does the reality of Christ fuel in me an earnest desire to live with a gospel conviction in their midst? To put the kingdom of God on display through my deeds and to share with them the amazing news of Christ. I remember seeing Evan my oldest son at a baseball practice. And I was standing around with, with the other coaches afterwards, and I saw Evan gather about three or four of his teammates with him. And he had a little book in his hand, and he was reading something to them. And he was telling like this story, and he was using all kind of hand motions and whatnot. And I, I kind of walked over, and I listened. And he was like, and then he made the blind man see. It was the last phrase I heard. And I saw all these little kids go, wow, that's awesome. And then one kid goes, yeah, that's cool. Can we go play catch now? And then they were like, yeah, okay, let's go play catch. And I looked and he brought his Bible with him and then he put it back in his baseball bag. And so they ran out running and I heard one kid go, man, that's awesome that he made a blind man see. And then I heard Evan go, yeah, and next practice, I'll tell you how he walked on water. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, he lives with the wonder of Christ. He makes the blind see. He walked on water. He rose from the grave. That past is who he is now. Why could I not? Why would I not want to share that? Michael Green in his book Evangelism in the Early Church wrote this about how the gospel spread in its early days. He said Christianity burst on the world with all the suddenness of good news. Good news that was proclaimed with great enthusiasm and courage by its advocates and backed up by their own witness and experience. And it was the fruit of their conviction that God has transformed the apparent defeat of Good Friday in the supreme victory of Easter. My question for us today is, can we reclaim this type of energy? Can we burst on our worlds with the good news of the gospel? Can we proclaim it with enthusiasm? Can the witness of our lives show that we really believe the grave is empty? No, no, better yet, that Christ is seated at the right hand of God and He is alive. Can you burst onto your world with the good news, with courage and enthusiasm? Can you back it up by your Spirit-empowered witness and experience? The Scriptures show us that this is what the Spirit is working in and through each and, and every one of His people. That means you. The reason why Renovation Church carries the core value of mission is because it rests on the conviction that the gospel's true that Christ has risen, and that whatever God's going to do in the world, He's going to do it through all of His people. Just this week, I was on an airplane. I sat next to a 77-year-old man who's followed Christ his whole life, and I, as we talked, I looked at him, and I said, can you tell me 
what advice would you give a young man like me? He said, let me tell you what. He said, live for Jesus. Because as I face the latter years of my life, I don't think I've really lived for him like I should. And that's a regret that I pray his grace covers for me. I pray we learn from him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. God, I pray that you help us to live with gospel conviction. I pray, God, that you help us to put the kingdom of God on display through our actions. And I pray that we would reclaim the desire to eagerly and courageously share the wonderful message of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.